We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to Sorted Cinema. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1986's Psycho 3, uh, written by Charles Edward Pogue and directed by the great Anthony Perkins. All right, my name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me as always is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? Uh, and Simon Howell. Hello, and Patrick, thank you in advance for picking Psycho 3. <laughs> you know, I had seen it a long time ago, and I remember liking it a lot and uh i when i suggested to you guys i wasn't sure if it was going to hold up i was sort of crossing my fingers on that one but i'm glad that it did uh yes i picked psycho 3 i am a, a massive fan of the original psycho um and i'm not going to be here and say that like psycho 3 is the exorcist 3 which in many ways i think is actually better than the original exorcist it's not that it's not a masterpiece, but it is great in so many ways, and it does something uh, of its own. That's why I ended up picking this movie. I think this movie has a lot of fun with the Psycho universe, and it it writes a few of the the wrongs that were committed in Psycho 2, or at least it tries to as best, and sometimes as clumsily as it can, but it still does that, and it does so with a sense of humor. And I, Simon, I mentioned this to you like briefly before we started. It does it with a sense of humor that I think Alfred Hitchcock himself would have appreciated. And there are some scenes in here that I know he would have laughed at uh, for sure, like a wicked little chuckle. So yeah, I picked Psycho 3 because I think it's an interesting footnote. Uh, it was directed by Anthony Perkins, which is awesome. And um, it, it's one of those movies that I think it's because it was a sequel. Uh, people just automatically assume it's garbage. It is not. It's a fun, fun movie. All right, but before we talk any more about Psycho 3 and how great it is, uh, let's hear a clip first. Norman Bates has finally got his act together. I'm going. I won't be out late. Mother? After being locked up for 22 years, Norman finally has a reason to celebrate. What shall we toast to this time? Happiness. After 22 years of being a bad boy, Norman Bates has finally become the kind of son that makes a mother proud. He runs a respectable business. He's met a nice girl that he likes. If only he could forget about... The past is never really past. It stays with me all the time. And no matter how hard I try, I, I can't really escape. She's a nice girl. She's a whore. But we, we, we didn't do anything. You let her come between us. God, will you leave me alone, Mother? Will you leave me alone? 
It's perfectly natural for a son to love his mother. We all go a little mad sometimes. It's homecoming week at the Bates Motel. And homecomings often bring out the worst in a family. Norman, can't you do anything right? Anthony Perkins, Psycho 3. The terror is now complete. All right, that was a clip from Psycho 3. Uh, Guys, there is no God. Um, What did you guys think of Psycho 3? Oh boy, Patrick, this is, it's not my favorite movie you've picked so far, but it is definitely the biggest revelation for me so far out of everything you've picked. Like most things you picked that I've been excited for, I pretty much knew were going to be up my alley, but Psycho 3, I don't think people realize, first of all, how good this movie is. We're going to get into all the ways of how cool and good this movie is, but second of all, like just browsing Letterboxd and other places, um, Psycho 2 is generally better thought of than Psycho 3, which is, yeah. I dare say, criminally insane, um, just like Norman Bates. I mean, 2, I, I, full disclosure, I watched like half of 2 and uh, and like read the Wikipedia page, so I can't, y- y'all will be, will, uh, will be in a better position to compare them. But it seems like a lot that uh, that is that is wrong with Psycho 3 is actually stuff that's been ported over from the second film. Whereas three, which as you mentioned, uh, Patrick Perkins directed seems like it has Perkins really seems to have uh, taken this as a chance to write the record about uh, how about Norman Bates post incarceration in this new mindset where he understands himself. Uh, And I'll be referring to, by the way, the only book written about the life of anthony perkins it's by uh, a fellow named uh sorry it's by a fellow named charles weinkoff and it's called split image the life of anthony perkins there's only a few pages in it about psycho 3 which is kind of surprising slash not totally surprising but anyway um really interesting stuff in here about what he was trying to do and why he was trying to do it and how he went about doing it all of which is super interesting but uh i think for the reasons you mentioned patrick people just assumed it was shit the reception at the t- it was not well received at the time. It was a box office just disappointment to the extent that the next sequel uh, ended up being direct to, to to television. It ended up being a TV movie, I believe, um, which is all really too bad because Perkins directed the hell out of it in a lot of very interesting ways, which we'll get into. And I think um, I think just how interesting and fun and of its time um, this movie is will is really going to blow people away if they give it a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I. I... <laughs> <laughs> he really did do some cool stylistic stuff here. And uh, again, I think he, I think Hitchcock would have been proud of him for a lot of this movie. And you're right about the um, the biggest flaws being baggage from Psycho 2. But Rick, I know you were not a fan of Psycho 2 and you tried to watch it before this one. I, you might even watch the whole thing. What did you think of Psycho 3? Well, I kind of like Psycho 2. I just... I liked it so much that when I watched it for the first time, I actually bought the DVD. But Psycho 2 doesn't really stand the test of time. There's some things I like about it, but we're not here to talk about that film. But Psycho 3 is 
fucking amazing. This movie is so good. It is like Exorcist 3. It might not be better than the original, but it's one of those sequels that's like the third in the series that just so happens to be great, like Scream 3, like Exorcist 3, like Aliens 3. Yes, like if you put aside the, the, the studio interference, that was actually a really good movie by David Fincher. This movie is really, really, really good. If you haven't seen it and you're listening to the podcast, go out and watch it. What's most remarkable about Psycho 3 is the direction of Anthony Perkins, because this is the first time he directed a movie and it is bloody amazing. Um, He shows so much confidence and skill behind the camera. And also because he's an actor, he knows how to direct actors, which is a bonus if, you know, you see a lot of actors become directors and their movies tend to be like really, really good. Well, I would have loved to have seen Anthony Perkins direct more movies. Too bad he didn't because he only directed two. And this might be the best of the two. But damn, it's a really good movie. He does this thing where he acknowledges the influence of Alfred Hitchcock. And there's a lot of like scenes in which he pays homage to Hitchcock. For example, the opening scene is clearly a callback to a very famous scene in Vertigo. But he still makes it his own movie. And the thing about this movie that I think makes it so much better than the second film is he really cares about the character of Norman. Yes. And you can tell he cares about Norman. So despite the fact that Norman is a psycho and a murderer, he still cares about the character and he deeply cares about the background of the character and about the character's family. I'm not going to call it campy, but it does have a touch of dark humor. And oh, it yeah. feels it feels so different than the previous two films at times. And at times it feels so similar to the previous two films, especially the first movie. And I love the references to Psycho. I love the transitions. The guys, the transitions in this movie, and it was all Anthony Perkins' idea. Like those unique scene transitions are amazing. We have to have a whole section talking about how awesome some of these transitions are between scenes because that that's really I think where you put a lot of stylistic touch in that uh, that was not that was missing from Psycho too. Um, it, it's super super cool stuff. Like the sequence in which he leaves the hospital and then he's closing a door, but then it transitions to him being at home and entering the bedroom. But you don't even realize that there's an actual cut from the hospital to the bedroom. It's it's like incredible. There's like I'm telling you, and there's one there's one transition where it's at the motel and the camera pans to the TV and then it cuts and it's it's where does it cut to? Is this cut to it, it, it cuts from um the TV I think that's in, in town, right? Somebody's watching it in town and right. then it cuts to the motel and, and he's has the same program on. Right. And so like the way he transitions those two scenes, he basically has the camera move at the ex- in the exact same motion in the exact same direction. It's it's not like a match cut where you, you know, zoom into a close up of someone's eye and then you cut to a close up of someone else's eye and you zoom out. It's kind of different the way he does the transitions. It's kind of genius. There's so a there... thread in there, like an emotional thread. That that scene at the hospital, um sorry to cut you off, Simon. Yeah, but that... No worries. That scene at the hospital is definitely like it's better than had you cut, right? Having it be one like he walks through the doorway, and I, I believe that wasn't even a cut. I think that's just a set that they built that that can transition from the the house room from the hospital room. But it just helps guide that sort of uh, the emotions that Norman's going through at the time, feeling what he's feeling for this new woman that's in his life, 
who he has sort of emotionally mistaken for Janet Lee's character um, mm. for Marion Crane, and that maybe he has a chance to redeem himself almost. And then transitioning, having to explain that to mother, what's going on in his head. I, I think if you cut there, you lose a little bit of that. But anyway. Uh, I, I know Simon wants to cut in, but yeah. honest to God, guys, the transitions in this movie are incredible. So I want to give people a sort of a sense of what the movie is about if they've only seen Psycho. And without getting into too many details, I think a decent way to pitch this movie to people who haven't seen it is um, imagine, because, I mean, these movies, Psycho 2 and Psycho 3, take place, you know, 22 years, 23 years after the events of the original. And, of course, Perkins is still on board, and half of the appeal of these movies is just hanging out with the aged Anthony Perkins, who just has such a different... Um, screen presence than he used to although kind of the same in some ways but just imagine um, Psycho being rebooted for the 80s and now Norman Bates kind of gets to be Freddy Krueger or he kind of gets to be um, one of these iconic 80s slasher villains except and I, I don't think either of you would disagree with me here the real villain of these movies is not Norman Bates it's the it's the cruel heartless society that uh, that keeps sort of turning him inward and and crazier. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Mm, sort of. I still think so, he's a psycho. It's a little bit of both because obviously, um, what's happening with in his head with his mother is a driving force still. But yes, there are outside forces that are pushing him towards that insanity a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, it, it's it is his fate to become uh, to become this figure over and over, and but, to but be Simon, possessed by this figure over and can, over. Can I just point? Can I just point out the fact that the movie, it doesn't open. One of the early shots in the film is him killing innocent birds so he can stuff the poor birds. That's like, true. But but he lets one go. And so you see the duality, yeah. right? He is struggling with himself so, in this movie, perhaps more than ever. There are two things about how Perkins directed this movie that I really want to mention. Um, one is from... Uh, one is from a TV interview he gave. Another one is from the book, although I'm sure lots of it is repeated in various different places. Um, when he's talking about directing in one of his TV interviews, he was talking about um, how it's important to treat this material, which I think he kind of acknowledges as being quite over the top. Um, he, de he deliberately avoided camp or wanted to avoid camp. He wanted to treat it very seriously. And to him, that was the way, if, if the audience wanted to bring their own reaction of laughter or, or discomfort, that's totally fine, but he wanted to treat the material seriously and with respect. The other thing was that um, he was an industry veteran and he understood how marketing worked and not just filmmaking, but marketing and packaging and and also and budgeting. He really wanted to come in under budget and under under time if he could. He wanted to give the, the, the studio absolutely no excuse to boot him off or to undercut the film in any way. So he really bent over backwards to make them happy uh, including he he figured that they would want the kill scenes to be over the top, which they did. So he made them very over the top. You know, we get that um, that phone booth sequence where there's just slash after slash after slash and blood on the screen and blood on the screen. And apparently that's very much how he directed it. Just maximum gusto, uh, giving them everything they asked for while also e extracting concessions where he could, like getting an older actor than they wanted for the role of the uh, of the of the uh, journalist. Uh, and uh, and uh, th no, at the same time, of course, he fought to have it in black and white, which they balked at and didn't give him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I just thought it was so interesting how he brings all this style to it. He handpicked Carter Burwell, uh, the Coen's, uh, the Coen brothers is uh, 
composer because he loved Blood Simple so much. In fact, uh, he made the entire cast and crew watch Blood Simple before they shot this thing. So this was a guy who was very much up on current independent and genre filmmaking, uh, which maybe explains why the opening feels a bit like Paris, Texas, um, at least to me. All that wandering in the desert. You know, um, I was talking to Simon, like, I think the day after I watched the movie for the first time, and I was telling Simon I could not help but think of Blood Simple, specifically later in the movie when we get to the sex scene in the motel. And then sure enough, it turns out that Blood Simple was a major influence on him making a movie for the style, the sound, the look, which yeah. is mind blowing because Blood Simple is one of my favorite movies, movies of all time. So I clearly see the Coen brothers influence in in this movie. Yeah, there's the other thing that's super weird about the style. And I think watching it now, you can't help but think it. But there's two or three scenes that eerily prefigure David Lynch, especially um blue velvet and fire walk with me i thought of them both a few times throughout the film and i don't i mean just based on the this came out actually i think two months before blue velvet uh and some of the synchronicities are quite spooky i don't think it's because one was influenced by the other or anything like that at all i think they were just uh something about perkins's uh collision of uh 1950s 1960s characters and sensibility with the sort of more modern slasher style and sort of his take on this sort of twisted nostalgia, I think ended up in kind of a similar place to Lynch aesthetically completely by accident. And it's fucking cool. Yeah. You know, okay, actually we're, I'm about to spoil a scene. I can spoil it, right? Spoil this entire movie. My God. Okay. Yes. There's a shot at the end of the film in which he basically almost shot for shot copies the death of the original character in Psycho. So basically when Maureen dies in this film and she falls down the stairs, yeah. it's 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 a shot for shot copy of a character from the original film. Ar- Arbogast's death exactly. when he falls down the stairs, yeah. And his step. And, and so so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that they film the actor in front of a green screen and then film the camera looking down on the staircase and then superimpose the actor falling from the green screen shot. Okay. Yeah. So that's how Hitchcock did it originally that way. He had the actor actually sitting in a chair and just waving his arms around. And, uh, and yeah, that's just, that's rear projection behind him. Uh, I am assuming this is not necessarily green screen in Hitchcock's. It was, projection rear projection right but, yeah exactly um and he may have done it the same way here too because it looks exactly like rear projection yeah. <laughs> so you know I, i'm pretty i'm pretty sure it is i'm pretty sure he didn't use green screen because i'm pretty sure like i mean if you watch this movie there's so many callbacks to the original film that i'm pretty sure he wanted to do it the way hitchcock did it way back in 1960 yeah and it looks great <laughs> yeah it looks fantastic uh and then like there's even the shots of her you know hitting the floor uh, and you know like marion um, hitting the floor of the bathroom when she falls out of the, the tub. There's lots of callbacks, but the great thing about it is those callbacks aren't just homage, but they're actually important to Norman's character because yeah. he is sort of reliving the events from the first Psycho, more so than Psycho 2, which I, he obviously has to reference things from that movie. There are story things that he's got to like, he's got the burden of tying up. But he's emotionally, this is a big connection to, to the original Psycho. 
And the thing that I, I read, like I read a few reviews of the movie, which weren't very positive to be, to be honest, but everyone seems to complain that it was too much of a slasher film and not enough of a character study. And I kind of like disagree. Like there are a lot of characters in this film and it is only about like an hour and 30 minutes long. And it's pretty amazing that there's like an A plot, a B plot and a C plot with so many characters involved. And yet he somehow finds time for each of these characters to have just enough screen time. Although we could argue that uh, maybe they could have given more screen time to uh, what's her name, the nun. But I do still think it's maybe maybe character studies uh, is too strong of a description, but he does still care about the character and it all does revolve around the character and his feelings. And like you said, Patrick, there's like there's a callback to the past. Everything means something. It's about it's because they don't really dive deep into like mental health issues or, you know, like what makes Norman tick or go crazy you know like there's a whole backstory with like his his relationship with his mom and and there's this whole like weird family love triangle involving his mom his aunt and his dad and but i still think it's somewhat of a character study and i don't think it's a straight up slash i wouldn't even call it a slasher film to be honest i i mean i think the second half does kind of devolve into a slasher film but i would say it's a pretty a it's a pretty solid slasher and b I think anyone complaining about character development in this movie who liked Psycho 2 is out of their fucking mind. Right, but the original film, I mean, inspired slasher films, but I don't think it's a straight-up slasher film. Like you said, the second half, but not the yeah. entire film. The the I To my mind, the best way to illustrate the difference between Psycho 3 and Psycho 2 and why Psycho 3 is so much better, Psycho 2 opens so artlessly by just like showing us again the shower murder from the original for no good reason, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to remind us, oh yeah, Psycho, good movie. Uh, that, well, I guess we're going to prime you for another equally good movie, which it's not. Okay, wait a um, minute. Sorry, I haven't seen the movie in a week. Can you refresh my memory? When do we get the flashback of the shower scene? Psycho 2, it, it's, it's the opening. But in Psycho 3, what we get is this diner sequence. Okay, yeah. We're going to talk about that later. Can we put that on hold? Yeah, we can. But I'm just going to say, the way I'm not going to get into specifics, but the way that that footage is incorporated in this movie is so much better, so much more artful. Uh, so uh, just a brilliant little sequence, it, which we'll it get to. Connects, it's, it's my it's favorite connecting. scene guys. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, then we'll definitely get to that. Well, I've got another scene. That's going to be my favorite. Okay. That connects to psycho. Oh, you, you can go well. ahead and say what you want to say. And I'll say, I'll, I'll say my piece after the break. Oh, I want I, I just want to iterate what, what Simon said there. It's, it's used way better because it's actually building his character. And this is important to the story. When they use that piece, that callback, that is telling you something very, very important about what's going on in Norman's head right now. And that's going to spin the story in a completely different direction. So mm-hmm. because at this point, he's kind of this, this movie takes place, I think, about 40 some odd days after after Psycho 2. So it's yeah. very, very close. Um, but this is going to tell you where what path he's going down now, uh, where he sort of thinks he has a handle on himself. Uh, but he's he's. This is going to spin him off in a different direction now. Okay, I'm just going to talk about it now. But before I do, I just want to say that this is two weeks in a row. We review a horror film, a sequel that takes place right after the first movie sort of ended. I know it's like a few weeks later, but the movie, when it opens, when we actually get the shot, the very first shots of the motel, we do see the book from part two and we do see the broken window so right away it clues you in like this happens right away after part two ends and then of course we get the diner sequence and the characters return from part two and it all makes sense right but just going back to that diner scene so 
Basically, Maureen walks into the local diner where Norman was working in part two. He notices Maureen. She enters carrying a suitcase. The suitcase has the initials MC, which clearly calls back to Marion Crane from the very first original film from 1960. And then Psycho 3, the movie that we are reviewing today, actually goes so far as to use brief snippets from the iconic shower sequence. And it cuts those scenes, like those flashbacks in black and white with what Norman is seeing in the diner, present day, seeing this beautiful young blonde lady walk into the diner who just so happens to resemble Marion Crane from that original film. And it's the lighting, it's the camera composition, it's the, the way he, the editor, I mean, whoever edited this film, I'm sure it's someone big. God damn it, you did an amazing job editing the sequence. But that quick montage, the fast cuts, but they add a little twist to it. There's this really eerie, strange soundtrack playing in the background. And I think they slow it down so it sounds like chanting, sort of like a cult chanting in the woods. And then the record skips and it ends with a record scratch. And then Norman snaps out of his little trance. I love the way the record scratch symbolizes, uh, you know, it's sort of, it, I mean, vinyl is still around, sure, but it's like an antiquated form of music. And like, we literally get the the record stop happening and it's like snapping out of the past and into the present. Um, and I just, I think if I had to, if I had to just summarize why I love this movie so much, I think it's really all in the, in the culture clash and the time clash and how Perkins uh, modernizes this character in this setting uh, while still, I think, keeping the core, the emotional core of the original. And and like he just really enjoys the juxtapositions that come out of that. And so do I. It works really well for his character, too, because he is stunted in his growth, essentially. So it makes sense that his world would seem old fashioned in many ways. And of course, you can see how he lives in his house and even his hobbies like he's still stuffing birds. And by the way, I love that little opening bit where he's like uh, he's spooning in <laughs> peanut butter onto the crackers using the same spoon that he's been. Oh, like... That's such a good bit. Yes, <laughs> it's a first cringy kind of thing, letting you know, like this could be this could be a little macabre. Um, yeah, it, it, it works for his character that the world is like that. And then he incorporates some modern characters, right? With, with the Jeff Fahey character and the reporter. Yes, the reporter. Winston is in this movie, guys. <laughs> uh, Jeff Fahey is the motherfucking man. He is so good. He's, he's so good in this movie. I'm like such a huge fan of him now because I actually watched Lost for the first time last year and I binge watched the entire series in like a month huge fan of him now but i mean he's been in a lot of great stuff he's like been in like over like 100 movies yeah is 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 it my oh, sorry is this my fucked up recollection or is he in planet terror he is, he oh, is. yeah, yeah he's in that movie, yep. okay i have a question for you for you patrick so okay. i just want to know what you think of the actual dark humor because you can you can clearly tell that the screenplay writer was trying to add the dark humor and there's like these amazing lines like nobody stays here long or i don't know i've, I've, seen, I've, seen, worse. I've seen worse <laughs> yes, <laughs> <That's about yes>. <laughs> so i just want to know what you think of the dark humor and do you think and i think the answer is yes but do you think he balances it nicely like the humor with the darker tones and the more serious like content and absolutely i don't think that he made a comedy but he knew when to throw in something uh it's just the right time where we need a little bit of a chuckle because you are dealing with some you know a a guy going insane 
he doesn't make fun of this, so this is, movie isn't a laugh. But I think things like uh, the Ice Cube, like that's fantastic, like dark humor. Okay, wait, I... you can't just say the Ice Cube and not actually explain well, what happens in that incredible know. sequence. <laughs> I don't know if you guys were like going to pick that scene or what, but okay, yes, the bloody Ice Cube, where the uh, the the policeman reaches into a ice container, like an ice box outside that you'd have outside a motel or a gas station. And uh, he reaches in for an ice cube because it's a hot day, and what he doesn't realize is that there's a corpse inside that that thing, and it's been bleeding all over some of the ice cubes, and he just absentmindedly sticks a few in his mouth, and he's got blood going in his mouth, and um, only Anthony Perkins seems to notice this because he knows the body's inside there. Uh, so he's a little twitchy about it, but uh, but he, there's also a little smile on his face when the, when the guy sticks the blood in his mouth. And so his that, that scene is specifically mentioned in the book, and I just want to read a brief section... It was Perkins's own idea, for instance, to have the the to have the. So this is when the the broader context that they're talking about all the stuff that he was adding to make the 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 gorehounds at the studio happy. Um, it was it was his own idea, for instance, to have the sheriff, played by Hugh Gillen, unknowingly pop a bloody ice cube into his mouth and suck on it during the expository scene where a corpse is is nearly discovered in the motel ice chest. Though Gillen objected to the juvenile gag, Tony persuaded him to do it quote just for fun saying that he probably wouldn't use the take. Of course he did. (laughs) So classic, classic directing. Is it just me or is that the bomb theory? Hitchcock's bomb theory, because it's, it's, it's pretty like, it's, it's funny. It's, it's a brilliant scene. Like it's really clever. Like the fact that Norman kills the boss, kills the guest, the girl hides her body in the outdoor freezer. The sheriff standing there. Like you said, Patrick, he's like, He's sucking on the ice cubes and he doesn't realize that the the dead body, the, the victim, the person who he's looking for just so happens to be right next to him, buried under the ice. And he's grabbing the ice, which is covered in blood. And you can see and, Norman ha- almost having a heart attack I because know. he's about to be discovered. <laughs> oh, my God. And the way it cuts back to Norman's worried look. Like you said, mm-hmm. almost about to have a heart attack, cuts to the sheriff. We get the close up of him sucking on the ice cubes, and then he slams the lid shut and walks away. I mean, never realizing that the victim who he's looking for was right in front of them. The scene uses Hitchcock's famous bomb theory, and it does it in a darkly funny manner. And that's why it's brilliant. It's one of the best scenes in the film. So, two things about that scene, two more things. One of them, does her body in the ice not have an incredibly Laura Palmer-ish vibe? Oh, yeah. Uh, also, I mean, she's not wrapped in plastic, but the way she looks and how the blue she, she is, which, yep. by the way, apparently she literally was just lying, like, in ice, barely covered, and was just blue. Like, that's just how she looked. Yeah, I, don't, I read I, that. I haven't, I haven't read, I don't know if that's been backed up, and it's. I don't think it's mentioned in the book, but, I mean, it is there on the trivia. Second thing is, can you fucking believe that people didn't, like, that... Uh, at the time, critics slammed Anthony Perkins's performance in this film. Like he's so fun, which and critics? So good. Which critics? Uh, I want to talk to them. We're gonna have a word. Uh, Andrew Saris uh, did. I don't know. There's a couple. There's a couple that are quoted in here. Like they they really didn't like his. I, I personally think his line readings are hilarious and uh, and and uh, in some cases quite moving. I personally don't like their writing. <laughs> His At performance all? is amazing. Come yeah. on. No, it is. And uh, his facial expressions, this is what he's so good at. He's conveying so much through his face. It, it's ridiculous. And he comes across as so much more 
human and real to me than he does than he does in Psycho 2 where he doesn't seem he doesn't seem as at ease with the character maybe because he doesn't get to direct and he feels quite protective of him uh but he also has um, a proper arc hero which i don't think he had in psycho 2 as much because psycho 2 was concerned about other things psycho he has could... a proper he has a proper arc and he also feels more like it's almost like he's pretending psycho 2 doesn't doesn't exist and he's doing a retake of how should norman bates be after getting out 22 years later and in, instead of this instead of what he does in psycho 2 he really plays him as a guy who's trying his best to be to behave normally to like get with the times and like try to get along. And there's a great example of this when he gets offered jokingly offered a threesome, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is what maybe the funniest scene in the whole movie. <laughs> but it, in, in great, like this is what makes him such a good director too. That's not a wasted scene either because no, yes, it's, it's a good gag, but then it also plays an important part in sparking what Norman's about to do. I mean, everybody know like from the very first movie, Norman's little tendencies would come out when he was aroused, and that scene has a little bit of that. And we'll see what happens. We get to see what happens afterwards with the stabbing in in the phone booth, which is very shower curtain. I I have a feeling that if he didn't direct part three, they whoever would have stepped in to direct the movie would have made him sort of like a typical slasher villain and would have completely ruined his character and his mm-hmm. and like. And maybe even the performance, because he still plays Norman the way Norman was and is in that original film from 1960. He's got the soft voice. He's like a mama's boy. He's very twitchy. And you can see that he's battling his inner demons. You can see he's troubled. And so he's very sympathetic, despite being you know, the villain. He is a psychopath you still sort of like care for the character and honest to God, like I was rooting for the character because I didn't want him to be the killer in the film because we do have, uh, what's his name? Duke. And yes. Duke, yeah. It, and call it, me it, Duke. Yeah. You, it, they could have, they could have written this movie that he is the killer. Cause in part two, Norman is not the killer. Norman does not kill anybody in part two. And so I actually thought that they were going to maybe do the exact same thing with part three. So the twist here is that, he is actually the killer and not going to repeat what they did in part two, but it's really weird. Like I could not help but think of like the screen franchise watching these films for many reasons. Like I mean, just hearing like the last name Loomis, right? Every time I hear that, I think of scream now, not psycho, but I was thinking about like how the movie does sort of have a twist. Like the twist here is that yes, Norman is actually the killer, not this guy Duke. Although Duke is sort of not very good. And he is kind of bad because he's going to blackmail Norman because he like robbed the corpse of his mom or his aunt not entirely sure what's his mom or his aunt at this point in time, but anyway, it, it's his aunt. It's his aunt. <laughs> they so, call aunt it that Psycho Two aberration, which was just like, come on, uh, give me a break. But 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 I still think that that was kind of like a twist, and in like part two, the twist is that Norman is not actually the killer, and then and here I kind of feel like the twist is that Norman is the killer, and so that's where I was thinking of like yeah. Scream, and I thought it was kind of like clever, and I actually think it's better because the original ending they wanted him to actually be the killer, and I think it's better that he wasn't the killer, and that it is actually norman bates doing the killing well they play with expectations i think and that that's what the stream franchise does and that's what this movie does quite a bit and uh, there's another great scene playing with your expectations which is the 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 bathroom scene the 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 tub scene like that completely leads you to to believe oh my god yeah and talk about that after the break yeah yeah i know i'll 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 oh my god (laughs) 
Well, we probably should actually take a break here at some point. Um, Before we take a break, can we just really quickly talk about the soundtrack? Because, Simon, you're the music guy, and I need to know. The score Uh, for this movie is not bad. It's not great. And I'm not sure how I feel about it because the second film, like, say what you will about the second film. I still enjoy the second film. I think it's the weakest of the bunch. But Jerry Goldsmith did the soundtrack, the score. He composed the score for the second film, and it's amazing. I mean, uh, having just watched Psycho 2 or like a chunk of it, I did notice that the score is much more classic Hollywood, uh, whereas this one is clearly going for a much more sort of eclectic uh, sort of uh, indie Americana vibe just because of what uh, Perkins was into at the time. And I think he was trying to I think he was just trying to do new things. And I, th- I think that the score to Psycho 2 is very much more more in line with the original. Yeah, this made it very. 80s for sure um and it works i think i'm not sure that a lot of the gags would have worked quite as well with a traditional score if the movie in general would have worked quite as well because it's such a weird it's a much stranger movie than psycho 2 it is not a traditional movie so maybe it would have increased that weirdness maybe it would have taken away from it it's hard to hard to really tell i i actually think part of the reason that your empathy for norman is so strong in this movie is that it's kind of not him doing the murders in a, in a in a real sense, I mean, clearly he feels he's being possessed or perhaps he even is being possessed by the spirit of his aunt mother. Um, and this movie, I think, makes that more explicit than either of the previous ones. Well, yeah. And the way the mother moves is kind of freaky. It changes positions. I mean, I know that that's most likely Norman doing that. And, it, you know, he just doesn't realize it in his own head. But the way that Perkins uses cuts back and forth to the corpse of you know, the, the, the ant, um, it makes it seem like she is uh, alive and possessed and, you know, it, there's something mystical going on here. It, it, it definitely is, is filmed. It, it, it's the movie treats it that way because again, it treats, it treats it seriously and it takes Norman's perspective at face value, yes. which I think is what make that's really what makes it, I think, uh, such an empathetic film such a weirdly empathetic film it it also makes that whole situation which could be easily uh it's very hard to walk that tightrope and not make that scene campy but the way he utilizes those cuts are very startling at times like some of those are the creepiest shots in the movie Um, when he's cutting from mother being repositioned or you know who he thinks is mother being repositioned uh, at times yep yeah i would agree and before we cut the break, this movie unfortunately bombed at the box office. It only grossed fourteen point four million, which I know sounds like a lot of money, but you know most of that money is being used to pay off like the actors and and crew. Although Simon, you did tell me that he took a pay cut, uh, Anthony Perkins, right? He only got charged as an actor. If I recall correctly, uh, part of the deal that he made with Universal was uh, let me direct it. They were kind of like ambivalent about the idea. They're like, listen, I'll just pay me at, pay me my acting fee. Don't pay me a, a directing fee on top of that. So they were getting a bargain. Like I said, he was very he tried very hard to make sure it was a success. There's another quick little story I want to tell from the book um, where uh, he's talking about um, uh, he's talking about when people were where pe- when people would tour the Universal Studios lot. He ordered the cast and crew and I quote, all right, everybody, everybody wave. Every one of those people is a potential butt in a seat. 
<laughs> but you he's know, hustling. He's out there hustling. You gotta, he did you his, he did his motherfucking best, let me tell you. When, yeah. when they made part two, it was supposed to be released straight to video. They wanted to just like uh, take advantage of the VHS market, and they figured no one, no one would want to see this movie in the movie theater. But it got so much buzz and so much press, and so many people wanted to interview Anthony Perkins, like movie critics, and like just like, you know. So that movie was never supposed to be released in movie theaters, and it was, and it was a huge success. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of like surprised that they pushed back on, or not pushed back, but they were a little like iffy on like how much money to spend on part three, because I feel like they didn't market part three, or maybe, maybe they did. But you know what? Do you guys, did you guys see what was out in the movie theater when part three came out? No, that I didn't check. Okay, so Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Then you had Karate Kid Part Two, which was you know oh, a sequel boy. to a very 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 made a shitload of money i'm sure yeah for sure labyrinth you know the one with david bowie yeah yeah Mm -hmm. ruthless people were huge at the time they were ruthless people which by the way was like a huge hit and of course it was uh i think it was written by uh david and uh jerry zucker right so they were like hot at the time you had big trouble in little china oh boy which bombed actually but which bombed an amazing Uh, movie you had aliens that got released the very same day you got maximum overdrive like I'm just I'm telling you. There's like, your was... R-rated competition, by the way. Yeah, Aliens that's released the same. Oh god. Yeah, exactly. Like why why would you release Psycho Three in the summertime? It makes no sense. Well, and the sorry, there is one last thing from the book that that is relevant to what you're saying that I need to mention as context for why Psycho Three bombed. Psycho Two did make a, did make a bunch of money. A lot of people went to see it. However. Um, the word of mouth on it was not that great. The word of mouth on Psycho 2 that from people who actually saw it was not that great after they'd been to see it. So the uh, the anticipation for the third one was considered like people weren't as excited about three as they were two, partially because it was three and partially because they just seen two and it was like kind of meh. Which makes complete and total sense, uh, unfortunately, for Psycho 3. Yep. Uh, all right, we should take a break really, uh, really quick here. When we come back, we'll do our five questions. But before that, here is another clip from Psycho 3. Anything else, Norman? So what do you think? About? What we were just saying. I mean, Norman, you were incarcerated for 20 years. 22. Right. For 22 years, you were locked away someplace. Now, the state says you're sane. You paid your debt. Then Lila Loomis starts to persecute you. Because of what happened to her sister? Yes. Marion Crane, right? Norman? Right. But that was 20 years ago. 22. A long time for someone to harbor revenge. Aren't you the least bitter about what Lila Loomis tried to do to you? I understand. My cure couldn't cure the hurt I caused. My return to sanity didn't return the dead. There's no way to make up that loss. The past is never really past. It stays with me all the time. And no matter how hard I try, I I can't really escape. It's always there, throbbing inside you, coloring your perceptions of the world, and sometimes controlling them. But that's my point, Norman. You aren't without conscience. You live with guilt and torment. You punish yourself all the time. Why does the rest of society have to? Take Mrs. Spool's disappearance. What if some well-meaning citizen got the idea that you had something to do with it? 
All right, that was another clip from Psycho 3. We are at our portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Uh, I think we're going to have a slightly different one. I've got a good question for you guys specifically related to the Psycho universe. Um, but before that, we're going to start things off positive. Simon, what is your favorite scene from Psycho 3? Oof. Um, I have to say, as much as I do love the diner sequence, um, which I know we, we already talked about, maybe Rick will want to talk about it a little bit more, but I, I really do, I the one that, the, the scene that really struck me as being like, what the hell, what was going on in Anthony Perkins' mind when he wanted to make the, the this scene in this way? And that's, of course, the sex scene of sorts. Um, <laughs> sex scene of sorts is the only way I know how to put it. Uh, yeah. between Jeff J. He's, uh, Jeff A. He's a uh, Dwayne Duke. And, uh, I believe that's, uh, who's the, who's the young woman? Is that Lee Garlington? Oh man. I don't know what the, the character's name is. I, cause they only say her name once, I think, or he yeah, doesn't even yeah. know her name. So I'm not sure that she ever introduced herself, but yeah, Lord. Anyway, uh, the young lady in his room who is of course doomed like every other person in this movie, pretty much. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, we already mentioned the uh, the blood simple influence, but um, something that uh, something that I was thinking of as a as a contender for things I would change is that when I was watching that scene, I was thinking, you know, what would kick the scene up a notch would be if Jeff Fahey dropped Trow, and like we we had some peen on the screen, you know. I mean, it it just seems I think like I the know kind where of you're scene, going with this, the kind of scene where it should happen, and it turns out that he wanted it. Uh, he did want Jeff Fahey to have his dick out in this scene, uh, but Fahey didn't want to do it, which is like, for the record, I think that's totally fine. Anyone should be able to refuse a new scene if they want. Um, but uh, so it, to get around the fact that Jeff Fahey didn't want to have his dick out, uh, he instead has him place these two lights in front of his crotch and shines them on the uh, the other actor in the room. And this wild music is happening and Jeff Fahey's making this crazy fucking look. Uh, and it's all very, uh, it's just such a vibe. <laughs> that was Jeff Fahey's idea though. The, the lamps. I think was... that was something they compromised on together. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole like sadomasochist, uh, like element to it, to what he's doing. It's almost like he, he likes the, I don't, that whole sex scene has a really weird vibe to it. Well, he's he's almost like um, Fahey as as Dwayne is almost like the anti-Norman. Like they're clearly both bad people who do bad things, but um, you know, uh, Norman he is knows so it, Norman is introverted and uh, and repressed, where he is. Uh, you know, this guy is all id, right? And uh, he just, he, I wish that they, I, I wish they'd used him more. Uh, perhaps in the capacity the script uh, originally envisioned, uh, because unfortunately in the second half he's not as well integrated, and I just I loved the interplay of those two characters so much. Yeah, it's a it's a very very strange um, scene that, that that helps make it's just one another one of these things that makes this movie so bizarre at times, and it's shot really really well. The use of color in that scene is fantastic, uh, and then just the menace from Fahey, because we'd already seen him do something fairly menacing along these lines before, early in the movie. So it, it, this kind of builds upon that, which tells you, gives you all the clues you need as to what's going to happen in the end of this movie, uh, as far as his character goes. Um, Rick, now you already brought up your favorite scene. Did you want to talk more about that scene, or did you want to like pick out maybe something else? 
I have a feeling that my second favorite scene is your favorite scene. So I don't know if I should steal your thunder. Well, should we talk about that one then right now? So how about you go and then I will come back and tell you what my favorite scene is. My second favorite scene. Okay, my my favorite scene is the bathtub uh, suicide, like Hell yeah. suicide attempt. It is yes. an incredible scene that that at first you think like, oh, he's just ripping Hitchcock off, and boy does it turn, and it's uh, it's lands massively with this kind of bizarre like he opens up the curtain, she is lying there in a pool of her own blood in the bathtub. Yep. She has slit her own wrists, and he yep. goes, shows you graphic depictions of that, and Norman just stops. He's all. Stops. He's got his knife raised. He's in his mother outfit, and he just doesn't know what to do. Like it's. It's like he snaps, and this is a huge turning point for his character in the movie. And she, meanwhile, she is seeing the Virgin Mary, uh, because she's an ex nun, and she's like seeing this religious symbolism, like Mary holding a, a metal cross instead of a knife, and thinks that like she's being getting a message from God. So confusing Norman and religion is also very interesting. But the whole thing, to me, is a gut punch. Like, I love that moment for Norman's character. I think Anthony Perkins had a message from God filming the scene because it's it's genius. I mean, he offers us a superb twist about 30, 40 minutes into the film. It's sort of like the way Wes Craven gave us that big twist at the opening of Scream, only it's a bit cooler because it happens about 30 minutes into the film and no one expects it. It's incredible and like you're right the restaging of the shower murder with the vision of virgin mary i mean this thing gets blasphemous and i don't know how critics reacted to the juxtaposition of the religious images you know what i mean like maybe that's why critics had a problem with the film when it got released i don't know but i was kind of like taken back and surprised that there was so many religious symbols and images in this film like the virgin mary holding a crucifix and the film has a really playful and uh darkly playful take on uh religion and specifically christianity um especially i mean it's right there in the opening uh it's a black screen with diana scarwood yelling there is no god uh and then slowly <laughs> opening with this inversion of the ending of vertigo um, a movie that is referenced several times um, throughout the film, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, um, well, really, really the first one for sure. The rest can be the, argued. The, the opening and the way that the diners, the, the way he gets disoriented in the diner sequence by the detail of the. Yeah, uh, I thought about yeah. that too. Of, yeah. Of, yeah, that made me think of but, but that you know, whole like, conflating her with another, with another woman yeah, is uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But two weeks ago, we talked about Sleepaway Camp and we talked about why that film was and still is so controversial to this day, right? But I was kind of like thinking maybe that's why people didn't like the film when it was released because not only do you have, once again, Norman dressed in drag killing people, which, you know, you could have like, I could see people having a problem in like, like the, the, you know, LGBTQ community or just like anyone in general, anyone who's like super religious having a problem with that, right? Um, but now it's like he's dressed in drag and then she sees him dressed in drag, but has the Virgin Mary. So technically he's dressed in drag as the Virgin Mary. <laughs> like, yeah. the, it's um... just lit so gl gloriously, though, and, and photographed so well. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm a Catholic guy. Like, I don't. This scene oh, come is on. That's a brilliant twist. Come on. This like... is a fantastic scene. Like, yeah. I, I love stuff like that. And yeah. like I say, it's a gut punch scene. I love Norman's reaction to this whole thing. Like to me, yeah. that that that's right where you're 100 now on board with Norman as a character. You're rooting for him. 
just because yeah. it feels like this thing knocked him for a loop. And yeah, I, I just love to see how he handles it and their whole little awkward romance afterwards. And I think he he obviously sees her as redemption for Marion Crane in a way. And it's this movie's kind of a tragedy as to how it all turns out. But that that's what he's sort of going for. He he has his moment to redeem himself and he takes it. And that's a that's an admirable thing and why we root for him um, going forward. And why well, it's so tragic when it, you know, kind of goes downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, look, some of the greatest scenes in all of like cinema when it comes to horror films is when a director can completely mislead his audience or her audience, right? And this is a prime example of just something that's so unexpected and plays with our expectations. And I should have chose this as my favorite scene. The thing is, the key word here is favorite. And I think that this is the best scene, but my favorite scene is still the diner scene. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're both really good. Yeah. All right. So I'm not actually going to name my second favorite scene, but I do want to just quickly acknowledge the taglines because I do this every so often on the podcast because I love marketing. And this movie has like the best taglines. Okay. So first of all, unlock the terror, unlock the fear and enter into an all new nightmare of, and then they hit cycle with the song, you know, like the uh, Bernard Herman track. Then there's Norman Bates is back to normal, but mutters off her rocker again. <laughs> That's a great one. Pretty good. <laughs> and for fans of Jaws, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the shower. <laughs> of course. Uh, when you were talking about things people might find offensive, I mean, to my mind, the quote unquote offensive thing about the Psycho franchise has nothing has nothing to do with gender or sexuality. It's, I think if there's anything to be offended by, it's the like, cartoonish treatment of mental illness but the funny thing is this movie kind of sidesteps that anyway by leaning so hard into the possession angle that it doesn't even really feel like mental illness anymore so if anything this movie cures the problematic elements of the psycho franchise a little bit yeah just because you're never really thinking about mental illness during this movie at all and you're not even necessarily thinking that norman it's hard to think of norman as a psychopath because you are on his side so much that you begin to see Mother as being the actual yeah. <laughs> demon in this movie. I mean, uh, he plays him like he's Mr. Rogers, sort of. Kind of, yeah. I mean, my <laughs> he's God. He's your friendly uh, neighborhood motel owner. Shout out to the other sex scene in this movie, which is fantastically awkward when he sort of lies on top of Maureen oh, <laughs> and no. doesn't know what to do <laughs> and gets freaked out. Um, uh... that, that's just fantastic stuff. Uh, that, that, to me, is like shows that he under Anthony Perkins understands this character so well. Uh, all right, <clears throat> we should move on. Uh, if there was one thing you could change about Psycho Three, I'm going to oh, go boy. Rick. You first. What would it be? So at the end of the film, when we have the reporter Tracy running around, she's running around in Norman Bates's home, and she basically gives this big, huge exposition dump. Ugh, very. And she's shouting left and right, and she's talking about some family history She's talking about psycho 2 unfortunately about, exactly yeah <laughs> she's summarizing the plot of psycho 2 <laughs> yeah i could not understand what she was saying i had no idea what she was talking about i was so confused and i was like lady you're going to explain the plot of the previous film during the climax when you're running around screaming and there's like the loud soundtrack blasting in the background and we can't understand what you're saying that to me was the one scene. I'm not going to call it a bad scene, but it was problematic in that I don't think anyone understood what she was talking about. It's not bad because of how it ends, but boy, if it didn't end like that, I think it, 
it, it would ver it, it's on the verge of bad and that's also the scene that i first and foremost had in my mind that that is just but that's the fault i i obviously they felt like they had to i don't know why i guess i do know why i mean they had to bring it back to mother right mother had to be the same mother from psycho they did not want this whole thing called psycho 2 to actually be seen now as the way that things were uh and for anybody that doesn't know the idea was that that norman's aunt was actually his mother and that she was in a mental institution and that his his real aunt raised him but he horrible. called her mother horrible yeah. not yeah. just terrible yeah. so they they basically retcon that whole thing <laughs> well that <laughs> and so no, that's no, a problem. mother was mother and this aunt was just a crazy person who thought she was the mother that makes it even worse because in part two they retconned what happened in the first film and then here they decide to retcon what happens in part two it and it's it's like kind of like what we want but at the same time like the execution was sloppy and we just yeah. wish that cycle two ended differently because cycle two it ends where he basically kills his aunt who comes back and confronts him about the quote unquote uh, love triangle that took place between her, her sister and Norman's dad. Yeah. And she claimed that she was Norman's real mother. And that's how psycho two ends with you believing that. So what exactly would you change Ricky? Well, there is a few options. We can completely delete psycho two from existence. That's part of my answer. Yes. Okay. Or you could just, not acknowledge cycle two, make the movie and not have that big huge exposition being spouted out by this lady and it no it's no it's not roberta maxwell's fault it's not the actor's fault this is what she was asked to do she's great in the film but you could just have ignored part two Mm -hmm. so here's what i would do to fix not this would actually fix the entire psycho franchise but unfortunately you would have to jump into an alternate dimension uh to do what i want to do um so in my alternate dimension, Psycho 2 never happened. In fact, this movie is Psycho 2. Uh, when just imagine that Perkins still gets to direct. It's Psycho 2. All the lore shit that clogs up the second half of this movie is gone. None of this stuff about uh, who is the aunt and the mother, whatever. Robert Loggia as the uh, as the relative good guy in the first one can stick around because he's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the cast of this movie can all stick around because they're all great. Uh, and then, because it would have gotten people actually seeing it as Psycho 2, I think people would have liked it. And I can also tell you what their original plans were for Psycho 4, which in my timeline would be Psycho 3, directed by Anthony Perkins and uh, and written by this by the uh, same screen writer as this one, uh, Charles Edward Pogue. The premise was this. Uh, I'll read you the, at what happened. So, so after Psycho 3 kind of bombed, this happened. Universal quickly canceled plans for Psycho 4, which Perkins and Charles Pogue had already outlined and which Tony was expecting to direct. In their treatment, described by Pogue as a, quote, very, very black comedy, Norman was to escape the asylum with a girl only to end up back at the Bates Motel, now being run as a mystery weekend attraction where the Bates crimes are reenacted. Naturally, the fake Norman quits, allowing the real Norman to step in. Tell me you wouldn't watch that movie. Wait a minute, that's part four? That's what they wanted to do for four <laughs> until uh, it got canceled. And then four ended up being with a different screenwriter for television. So now I don't think I've seen cycle four because, because part four is basically, doesn't he go to a radio station and tell his story? He calls into a radio station and well, what happens? He's married and he's about to have a, a child and he doesn't want the child to grow up to be a Norman Bates. And he's recounting. So half the movie is flashback, which is what makes cycle four 
not work very well. Uh, the flashback stuff isn't the greatest, so it shows the uh, young Norman, which they would eventually go on to do uh, in Bates Motel, right? Depict that kind of that relationship. When you say Bates Motel, you mean the show that came out a few years ago, or the one that was released back in the nineties? No, the the show that came out a few years ago. Okay, because have you seen the original Bates Motel? I have not. That no. never got released. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's some <laughs> clips and stuff online. It's brutal. With well, uh, with with Bud Court, yeah. The uh, <laughs> the the important thing about four, of course, is that it it ignores the events of Psycho two and Psycho three. So it tries to be a direct sequel slash prequel to the original, which just. If they were going to just start ignoring stuff, why didn't they ignore Psycho 2 in this one? I like the idea of just ignoring part two and, and just going ahead with Psycho 3, not having to feel the need to reference Psycho 2. But I still like like Psycho 2. Like, mm. I'm not a fan of the ending. But I, I mean, this is a film that was directed by Richard Franklin. Tom Holland wrote the film. Anthony Perkins, of course, stars in the film. It's got Meg Tilly. It's got a great cast. Dennis Franz in the film. It's got some great scenes. Like I said, the soundtrack is incredible by Goldsmith, who did some of the greatest soundtracks for any horror films. It doesn't stand the test of time. It feels really dated. It's not as good as Psycho 3, but I still like the fact that it exists. And the cinematography of Part 2 is, is uh, done by Dean Cundy, who is like, you know, a genius. Uh, and a prop by Farrah Miles. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it did. Well, I love I love Vera Miles. Like back in the day, Vera Miles was amazing. Um, I'm not sure that her work on Psycho Two is her best, but probably not. Uh, it also was mention... a horribly written character, by the way. They betrayed her character with with that character. Uh, Ricky, you you assumed that the editor of Psycho Three did other stuff. Uh, mostly, he worked on television. However, he did also edit Ghostbusters. So Who's that? he did a few, he did some. Uh, that's David Blewett or. Yeah, David Blewett. But he's the editor of what? Two or three? Three. The editor of part three edited Ghostbusters, the original? Yeah. Yes. In 84. Okay. And Anthony uh, Perkins managed to convince him to edit Psycho 3. Yeah, right after, so, on the heels of Ghostbusters. But yeah, it's interesting. He like mostly worked on uh, on television other than a couple of films. All right. All right. I have one short proposition for what I would change. Tell me what you okay. guys think of this. I, uh, I, would have made Jeff Fahey's character was clearly set up by the script to be a bigger villain than he ends up being. And I think it sort of half asses it in the end as to what he's doing, the whole blackmail thing. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting to have him also be a killer. So to have two killers going on, but Norman has no idea that he is also killing people. And so Norman is confused by some of the murders and some of them he knows he's committing as mother. But some of them, he's like, what the hell just happened here? I don't remember killing this person at all. So having two killers on the loose might have been an interesting thing going on there. And then well, the two killers kind of fight it out at the end for killer supremacy. Um, <laughs> I think that's actually a good idea because they could have ended the movie where we, the audience, are not sure who killed who. And maybe it was just him that did all the killing. Or maybe Norman Bates killed some people. But we don't know because at the end of the film, he does kill Mutter. Well, it's not really his mom. It's his aunt's body. It's corp her corpse, right? I'm confused. Whose corpse is at the end of the film that he cuts? the aunt. It's it's the aunt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he cuts apparently... the head off of the corpse of his aunt who he kills at the end of part two. So where's the original body of his mom? I guess. That was they... taken, I'm assuming, by the cops in the first. That was buried. 60s, it was taken buried and buried. Somewhere. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, that closing scene of him uh, cradling his aunt's severed hand, by the way, was a studio mandated addition uh, because they just didn't feel the ending was strong enough, so they they went back and reshot that ending. Oh, kind of like how the ending to add, yeah. The ending of Psycho wasn't strong enough with just a shot of Norman sitting there. Like you could have exactly, easily yeah. just had him sitting in the cab or in the police car. I mean, and uh, and that would have been good enough. I yeah, I don't really like the 
it's fine. It's a little bit of gruesomeness, I guess, and that's why they did it. But I don't think it really works there. I think you, it would have been. But the last shot of the original Psycho is just Norman sitting there. You didn't need anything special. You just had to have Anthony Perkins looking at the camera. Yeah. They could have done the same thing ending Psycho 3 instead of having the hand be like, oh, uh-oh, Norman's still yeah. crazy. You know, you didn't need that. Um, but whatever. Uh, all right, so MVP, guys. I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of argument on this one, but maybe somebody's going to throw a curveball. Uh, Simon, we'll start with you. Can I can I rephrase the question as uh, who is your MVP besides Anthony Perkins? Oh, sure, because we could do that. It, Should we I just feel all like agree it's cheating. That, I mean, yeah. yeah well, clearly. that's just Simon assuming that I'm going to choose Anthony Perkins. Well, that's why you never know. Rick Rick definitely tosses some curveballs sometimes. I but mean, let's say Simon and I, you are in our agreement. There's there's Anthony Perkins for sure. Who would be your second pick? I mean, I want to defend my choice to change the to change the question just because, you know, having read about his deep involvement in the writing, the way he brought the this new level of empathy to the character, and for a million other reasons, I just don't see how you can see it as anything but definitively Perkins's vision. That being said, if I had to pick someone else, uh, we haven't mentioned Diana Scarwood, uh, and I really I, I feel like she needs to be singled out for special praise, so I'll pick her here. Um, Maureen. It's, uh, as Maureen, uh, yeah. I don't think this is an easy role at all. Um, I think that she has to be kind of starry-eyed, and uh, but also kind of worldly at the same time. And um, there's some, especially uh, I I, I want to single out that scene where she's uh, she's calling out to uh, to Norman, who has just cut his hand by like gripping a, a large knife uh, with his fingers, which is quite a grisly little detail. And she's calling out to him because obviously she wants him. And she's, I just love the juxtaposition of this, this angelic uh, sort of elated look on her face, which I hate to keep calling, but calling back to Lynch, but so much reminded me of Naomi Watts and Mulholland drive. Uh, oh just yeah. That sheer, that, that open faced kind of Hollywood glow or That's whatever. Funny because I, what Maureen reminds me of is like that stereotypical, uh, get off the bus from nebraska yes, i want to be a exactly. movie star and that and, and then discovering the horrors of what's actually going on <laughs> yeah and scarwood who i i kept trying to think of what do i know her from and of course i know her from basically every brian fuller project ever like she's in wonderfalls and pushing daisies and lots of other stuff of his and uh she i haven't seen her in a lot of movies but man she is really great well, she needed to be great for, in order for the Norman's arc to work. So, yeah, she yes. definitely, like, she nails it. You had to have her be that very angelic character. You, could, you had to understand why Norman was infatuated her. And she, she, tough. she shows her as being having this angelic uh, presence or, like, affect or whatever, but she doesn't underplay that she's completely fucked up. <laughs> she's so fucked up. Yes. Yes, she is. <laughs> she's as fucked up as Norman, which I think that they got, the, they had to get the, the casting and writing so well, so perfect for that, for this quote unquote love story to eat, to pop off in any way. Yeah. Um, and I think she's so important for that. Listen, if you wanted to mention someone else as an MVP, we could mention a screenplay writer because can I just quickly recite one of the lines from the movie so Dwayne duke says stupid bitch you could have been coming instead of going <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a great great uh, post-rape attempt line oh um, god <laughs> also can i just say in in terms of this movie reminding me of other movies that i love from the future that it accidentally predicts 
huge showgirls vibe to their to the yeah. initial meet between uh, Dwayne <laughs> Dwayne Duke and uh, and Maureen. Oh God, yes. Oh my God. Oh, I'm glad I didn't think of that while I was watching it. But uh, but yes, I can see it now. Uh, no, I think you I think you you hit on all the people that I would also call MVPs as well. I did want yeah. to throw it out to the writer because there are some really good things as far as how this movie is structured. It's just kind of weird that I like. Uh, this movie wasn't going for something standard. Uh, there's a lot of strange things at the end with the the whole revelry of the, the people going to a football game, like there for a football mm-hmm. game. It's such an odd thing to have there and to throw all those people into the mix. And there are times when it feels like it's a camper movie, like like a Friday the 13th. I yeah. always felt like the, the girl who gets murdered on the toilet, I always feel like she could have played a camp counselor at any Friday the 13th. Yeah. 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 I also the, like uh, her line before she gets killed. She's like, you scared the piss out of me. Yeah. <laughs> the um, And I, I like her yelp when she sits on the toilet and the seat hasn't been brought down. Also, just really yep. quick, like the fact that they bring in like, what, 30 extras that who all arrive at the motel and like they party and it, like you said it could be like straight out of like a slasher film like friday the 13th or sleepaway camp but you would assume or audiences would would assume back in like when was this movie released in 1986 i think 86. yeah that yeah. all of these people would just end up like dying because someone like norman would kill them with a knife because like that's what slasher films would do but no only one of them dies and everyone gets away and they just continue to party so i thought that was kind of like a swerve and then he There's... acts like he's making out with her corpse while uh Oh god, yeah. That's a great, by. <laughs> great gag. Uh two more things that have come up that I, I feel the need to mention. Shout out to Roberta Maxwell, who plays Tracy. Uh mm-hmm. the studio wanted someone younger. He insisted on her. She was a uh Canadian stage actor mostly. Uh she was a like a legendary Canadian stage actor, about a huge veteran. Uh she she brings what I can only call Carrie Coon energy to this movie, uh, which I very much always appreciate. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the extras who are who are partying because they're so well directed. I, I don't know how much of their banter was written or whatever, but that that quick scene you get where there's a, a couple of them who we learn so much about in like the space of 45 seconds, like that they yeah. were like they, they like fucked in high school or whatever, and like one yeah. of them is just is just he can't even get through his line because he's chuckling over and over and over and interrupting himself, and it feels so natural. That you kind of wonder, did they just let this rip for like a couple of hours and then just get get a good bit, or was it just like a nicely scripted scene? And I have no idea. I, I bet this was just nicely directed. Everything's so economical in this movie. I don't think they would have had time to just let these actors do that. I bet they were on a rush. And like you said, Perkins was wanting to come in under yeah. budget and on time. I, I think he just probably nailed it. And you know, the, again, this is why he's the obvious MVP. I think his direction of to every all the little details in this movie really really stand out. Uh, there's a lot of care put into this movie, and you can really tell. Yeah, the the local yahoos really feel like real local yahoos. They really do. <laughs> uh, all right, so the Howard Hawks test, guys. Everyone's favorite question. Ooh. Three great scenes. Great scenes. I know we've, we've probably mentioned at least two that can go down as all-time that great scenes. Uh, but no bad ones. Were there any bad ones in this movie? Rick three great scenes so the diner sequence great mm-hmm. fantastic incredible the yes. suicide swerve of its twist was ingenious i would go so far as to say that the third great scene is i'm gonna go with the uh, ice freezer i think like the bomb theory <sighs> that's that is a really good one all right that, that's, that's, a great that's very borderline yeah because it's got suspense and humor um that's a great scene come on it, it is well it written is. 
his, and his well, performance is so good in that in that scene. That's uh, true. Norman's face from that, I can still remember the expressions he was making. That that's a good thing. And I watched this movie like a week ago. So so now, Simon, the question is: Is there a bad scene? I mean, the scene you mentioned where Roberta Maxwell gets shouldered with all that ex that horrible expo dump near the end of the movie is like pretty bad. But I don't know. Is it a bad? I don't know. Does that does that go go as low as bad? I'm gonna say no. So I'm gonna say Psycho Three, great movie. Fuck all y'all. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it, it is a bad part of that scene, but I think the scene redeems itself. And what's yeah. happening in the scene, him kind of stalking her and her pleading with him, and then the resolution of that, I think works very well. I just, what's coming out of her mouth is the problem, yeah. <laughs> which is and not like, her fault. Yeah, the, the real problem is just the lore. The family lore is boring and sucks, but it's kind of it's kind of sprinkled all over the place. All right, so that leads into the, the what I wanted to ask for the fifth question here, because you guys have, did you guys both watch Bates Motel, the TV series? Yeah, I watched some of it. We actually like, did a I, podcast on it until we decided to stop because we just didn't like the show. Okay. <laughs> I think so, I watched like a season maybe. I wanted to ask like if the Bates like franchise, the the Psycho franchise, like, okay, Rick, first of all, did you bring anything into that character? Did the show give you anything to attach to that character? When you go back and watch Psycho movies, do you bring anything from the Bates Motel with you? So I think Anthony Perkins is so perfectly cast. His performance is so incredible in all of the movies that even with the backstory, as good as Freddie Highmore did a job in like portraying Norman Bates as a younger Norman Bates, right? Because he's a pretty good actor, uh, Freddie Highmore. I still don't really think that it gave me any new insight into the character of Norman. It's pretty much what I expected. And I think what we all knew. So the show sort of like fleshed out the world, the town, his family, the people he went to high school with. But Norman himself, I don't think so. What about with Mother, though? Well, she's amazing. Come on. Like, she's an incredible actress. And I think that it clearly does because she's not really a character in any of the films, per se, because she's dead, even in the original film. Well, that's that's kind of the question here uh, that leads me into, like, is there anything more to explore in this franchise? Or is it you kind of answered like it didn't give you any insights into Norman? Is there I mean, anywhere that this this franchise can go, or would a no. reboot even be possible? I don't. Uh, well, I, don't think I mean, so. a reboot would be possible. Just they sort of tried money. it already. Yeah, Gus Van Sant sort of. But I, I think like Vera Vera Farmiga is incredible in Bates Motel. Like the problem with Bates Motel, like when Randy and I did the podcast, we we loved the concept, the premise. We loved the cast. We loved Vera Farmiga. We loved Freddie Highmore. There's so many things we loved about it, but there's a lot of things we didn't like about it, like the sibling Max. Uh, what's the name? Max Thero, the actor, the actor that plays Dylan. Uh, all of the B plot and the C plot and the whole pot fields, growing marijuana, like all this stuff that they. I understand that they're trying to flesh out the world and the criminals and stuff, but it just kind of felt like they were they were losing focus on what we were there to you know what we what we were there to watch a story about the family of Norman Bates, like the Bates family, right? And then we get kind of get lost in all of these different characters roaming around the town. So I, to answer your question, I don't think there's anything left to do with this franchise. I think it, all that's left to do is to watch the original film, maybe watch part two, definitely watch part three. And I don't want to say skip four because I need to rewatch or watch four. I think I've seen four, but I don't remember. It's it. okay. You're not going to like kill yourself watching it, but I mean that I'll make this quick. 
Will they attempt to make Psycho again? Fuck yeah, they will, because uh, there is no intellectual property in this world that has ever had some kind of following that is not going to get zombified one more time, yeah. if not ten more times. It's going to happen. Uh, is anyone else going to bring anything to, to the table? I think it's really fucking hard, because, uh, you know, especially the more you read about Perkins and Psycho, Psycho colored his entire life and career. He was a, uh, you know, he was um, uh, he was a teen idol. You know, he was headed for a totally different sort of career before Psycho happened. And I think there's something not to read too much into it, but I think part of the reason that, um, you know, he felt so passionately about taking over the role, uh, sorry, felt so passionately about sort of remolding the role in this third film. Uh, I think that he really felt something about the way that Norman is not able to escape his demons. He's not able to escape his past. Anthony Perkins was not able to escape Norman Bates either. So I think that he just got, there is a special synergy between him and the role that is just not the same as any other horror uh, central figure that I can think of, unless you go back to fucking Boris Karloff or something without, without him. And you know, he's been dead 30 years now, almost um, there is no psycho in my mind. Not really. It's it's crazy how psycho made him and broke him. Cause like you said, his career was never the same because he played, this psychopath who dressed in drag and talked to his dead mom. And it was hard for him to get a starring role in a movie afterwards. And of course there's like, you know, his personal like life and we're not going to get into that, but it was kind of controversial. And he's just, it's like the thing about the thing about Norman Bates is we can't imagine like, yes, we had Freddie Highmore playing Norman Bates, but a different form of Norman Bates, Norman Bates before he was an adult, he was a teenager. It's easy to sort of look at the character and not see Anthony Perkins in a role and see Freddie Highmore because he's a teenager. He's not an adult, right? But I can't imagine I can't imagine anyone making a psycho movie and anyone actually taking it seriously or being able to enjoy it without watching like Anthony Perkins in a role. Nowadays, I feel like if they're gonna make a new cycle, like if they're gonna reboot it, they're gonna do something silly, like they're gonna make Norman Bates an actual like woman. You know, that's a twist. It's like a girl nowadays. You know what I mean? Like that's what they do. They just sort of like they take the exact same story, the exact same character. And the big twist, according to the studios, is we're going to like change the sex of the character or change their their religious background or they're, they're going to be like white instead of black or black instead of white or let's make them Chinese. Like, you know, like, but that's but pretty much like they don't really do much with the franchise. It's all just about the name. It's about the brand. Right. Like, look at the Wonder Years. Like, there's yeah. no reason to call that show the Wonder Years, but they're trying to like bank off of, I guess. Sure. The, the the brand the wonder years which is weird because most people don't even know what the wonder years is nowadays it's because 80s nostalgia is huge but um yeah. i yeah i i think there's nowhere else that you can go the four movies pretty much cover it because it covers a lot of norman's life you know with anthony perkins it's unfortunate but that's also when you think of just towering performances over the years ones that just are when you actually say iconic like that that is a lot of people throw that word around that is an iconic performance there, there's just I mean, it, it's one of those few that just stands out all timer. Um, and it's not just, I mean, it, it was a perfect storm for him. It was the the role, the performance. It was the notoriety of the film itself. It had this rep that's mentioned right away in the in the opening of the book uh, of, you know, this movie that couldn't even be shown on television. Mm-hmm. You know, like don't walk into any... the theater late or you won't be let in. You know, yeah. like the, the, even when it was out, it was just incredibly hyped. 
but yeah. he but he also nailed it. So I don't even think it's the role. Like it's not the role that defined him. It's his performance that defined him. Ultimately, yeah. like he was too good, maybe. <laughs> um, all right, <laughs> uh, Simon and I, I'm assuming, cannot be found. Um, nope. Yep. All right. And so, Rick, go outside. Where can everybody find you and find the podcast and all that good stuff? So, the podcast you can find over at sortedcinema.com, which will get redirected to Goombastomp. It's a it's a thing. Don't ask. So, uh, sortedcinema.com, the official podcast of Goombastomp.com, the official movie podcast of Goombastomp.com. You can find all of the links in each and every single one of our posts. Just check the archive, the category page. You can listen to the show on Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Pandora. It is everywhere. Uh, once again, you can find all the links over at SortedCinema.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sorted Cinema. Perfect. All right. Then until next week, we'll see you then. I love the dear silver that shines in your hair. And the brow that's all furled and wrinkled with care. I kiss the dear fingers so tore one for me. Oh, God bless you and keep you, dear mother. Bates. Doesn't scan, does it, Norman? <laughs> but a lot of shit around here doesn't. What are you doing with my mother? Don't you mean mummy? Nice job on her, Norman. Fresh as the day she was croaked. Why? Just looking out for you, Norman. And yourself. Oh, I have ambitions. Dreams. But dreams don't come cheap these days. I mean, I could have turned Mama over to the cops this afternoon, but all that would have gotten me was a pat on the back for doing my civic duty. Now, girl reporter, she would have shelled out a few bucks. But then she would take a lion's share of the credit and parlayed that into a, a five-figure salary and a big news job. That's fine for her dreams, but what about mine? No, I figure Mama's greatest value to me isn't her value to you. I don't have that kind of money. Don't cry poor to me, Norm, with that big piece of real estate up in the hill and this thriving business. Why, if things got tight, you could just sell an acre. Yeah. Please, Duke. I want my mother back. Take her. You know what I want. And you know what I'll do if I don't get her.